Hi, everyone. This is Mitch Ashley with DevOps.com, and you're listening to another DevOps Chat Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very special person, a good friend of mine, Donald Lutz. He's principal software architect in many companies. We'll kind of get into that, but he's focused on microservices, cloud. Um, he also is very involved with uh, Microsoft and his background. Uh, he's currently uh, involved in several things, but he's with his own company, Technotronic Systems, and he's worked with Faction, ViaWest. He actually was one of the original co-founders of Bolt Tech Systems with me uh, back a while ago. So our topic today is microservices going cloud native. Donald, welcome to DevOps Chat. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this. Oh, it's a, it's a great honor of mine. You're a good friend. And and to that point, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself to our audience, tell us about what you Yeah, do. I've been a sort of a principal software architect and a director of software engineering for different companies like Faction, my own company, TSI. And I've really, the past five or six years, focused on cloud native and take, you know getting microservices and applying that to building cloud native applications. That's really kind of what my focus has been. And there is a lot of DevOps that goes in there. There's also a lot of architecture and design, so it's a kind of combination of all of the above. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, uh, just full disclosure I mentioned before, you and I have known each other a long time. We started working together back in the telecommunications industry, and uh, I did a startup called Bull Tech Systems, which you were part of founding and getting going. And, you know, you've hired me, I've hired you. <laughs> we kind of worked with each other, which, by the way, for folks earlier in their career, that's a great thing to do. Keep, keep your friends close because you'll get to work with them again. Um, but you've had this consistent... Um, pattern in your career where I know you were very Microsoft and .NET focused for a while and then kind of moving into cloud and broader technologies. I mean, you've worked on Java and other things too. It's not that you just did Microsoft. But tell us a little bit about your philosophy on technology. Are you, you know, are you a, <laughs> a fanboy Microsoft or, or, or how do you kind of view that with everything else that's going on in the technology world? I mean, I could be viewed as a fanboy of Microsoft. Um, um, I mean, I help, I'm running now .NET Core and an open source meetup for Microsoft. You know, I, I really like where they've taken .NET Core. I mean, I would claim six or seven years ago, Microsoft realized that they needed to stop being so proprietary and get more into open source. Mm -hmm. So they really kind of redid all of .NET. And .NET Core is fundamentally, a, allows you to build microservices, traditional apps too. But, you know, they moved to the open source arena because they knew their future was Azure. It wasn't really Windows in the traditional sense. You know, 75 plus percent of all their things that run under Azure are Linux that run with another product called uh, Service Fabric. And, you know, that, that to me is a great technology. I have done Java. I've done Go. I've done a lot of different things. You know, I have a large Microsoft contingent, but they're all part of the same thing where everybody's trying to get to cloud native. What does cloud native look like? Whether you're Microsoft, Pivotal, VMware, everybody's trying to figure out how do you get there? You know, and a lot of people have taken steps like in between, like some people are trying to run VMware on the cloud. But I'm seeing a big push where, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people. I've been working with a really large financial institution right now, and they're, they're actually punting on the in-between, and they're going completely cloud-native using both multi-cloud, and then their definition is Azure and AWS. Interesting. And, and I'm aware of who you're working for. I know we're not talking about the company name specifically, but give us an idea of the scope and magnitude, because we're not talking like, you know, a credit union or a large regional no, bank. No, they're one of the largest financial institutions in the world. So they are looking, they're moving everything 
at the top level of their management, you know, CTO level, they decided that they wanted to do microservices, domain-driven design. Uh, they want to go all cloud-native. It's either going to be running an AWS and Azure. They don't want to own any hardware anymore. They don't want to have any of it. It's a, for them, it's an amazing um, kind of revolution because they've never gone there. And they kinda, they're kind of viewing that they want to run their company in a technological era kind of like a startup. So they've really changed their whole view. So I was kind of surprised that they were that interested in that. And the fact that they looked at the cloud and they said, we need to go cloud native because we don't really need in-between steps because then again, we have another shift and lift then in five years and we only want to have one shift and lift. So I was really surprised they even thought of that. Well, it is. And I'm, I'm very surprised by that too. It's, it's certainly, you know, I don't talk to every big you know, financial institution in the world, but for, to make that level of commitment of we are going to go cloud native, not like we're going to, you know, lift and shift what we have and just kind of live with legacy, if you will, and build new things in cloud native. They're actually taking the major part of their software uh, assets, the systems they rely on day to day, and they're shifting that, just going to cloud native in one big step. Well, several one big steps. It, it's a lot of big steps, but I mean, it was it was kind of surprising because but, you know, they brought in executives had been more out in the Silicon Valley and not traditional financial people. So they've made a different and they went and found a bunch of us who have been kind of in the cloud native microservices space and brought us on. They kind of viewed it as they're trying to build like a sort of the Super Bowl winning football team that if you get the top players, then you can get this to happen. That doesn't mean there still aren't, you know, interesting political battles since this is a company that's, you know, historically, you know, they still have DB2 and green screen. So, you know, it's sure. not like it's completely, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Right. <laughs> it's not like they started in the Linux area, though, era. Yeah. Um, so say a little bit about, so you have a unique perspective of you're not the kind of entrepreneur that's worked in, you know, from scratch, start up in the garage every time, repeat, repeat. You've done that. You've done that, but you've also worked with a lot of existing organizations. I know ViaWest was, had been acquired, I think, uh, by Shaw Communications after, before you joined and they were going through a transition. Yeah, I went there because they were, I was looking for a, a place that wanted to move to microservices and they had been acquired by Shaw. I knew their CTO, we chatted. So they hired me as the director of software development and the goal, they were all .NET. So I moved them to .NET Core and we started building microservices, which has, you know, which is the whole idea of, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of major design, a bounded context. So instead of having, you know, your monolithic application that has customers and data center stuff, we started building services like here's your customer service. And that it all deals with that. We also brought in some other they're less that DevOps people know, but more CQRS and uh, event sourcing. So the whole idea, um, each service is, has its own database that it writes its data to. It then issues commands. So say I created a customer, I say create customer. That causes an event called uh, customer created to get stored uh, in an event store, which almost looks like an audit log. That you never delete from it, you only add to it. So if you ever have any problem with all these distributed services failing, you can rerun this audit log and get back to where in the beginning. So it's kind of a powerful concept. These concepts have been around for a while but you're starting to see being employed at a larger level because, you know, the idea of synchronous communication doesn't work well in cloud native. In fact, you really just want to expose public APIs and behind the scenes, you want data streaming, you want eventing, you don't want any asynchronous communication because it, it, it's not the right approach. You can't scale. 
you know, you're in, and you're going to be dealing with eventual consistency. So, you know, once you start dealing with that, once it's not in one box, you know, eventual mm-hmm. consistency is it. Well, you're going uh, kind of stateless applications, right? Microservices. It's interesting that the trend is obviously is build much smaller things, reuse them, create services out of them, but there's going to be many, many more vast quantities of those. It's not like you're going from, you're going from one monolith with a lot of functions and APIs to really small pieces of software that are containerized microservices. But what, com- what comes with that is now all of a sudden you have the problem of managing that, communicating across it, synchronizing when it is asynchronous, how do you communicate, you know, handling uh, troubleshooting, knowing what all those services are. It sounds like what you're doing, you've done is you've reached back into some maybe techniques and technologies or knowledge of kind of past things and bringing that into this microservices fabric world. Is that, is that true? It's true. I mean, you know, we, you know, I, I, I did a lot of Kubernetes and all that. And, you know, even though you start doing Kubernetes and a lot of DevOps things, it's, it's, this is sort of the thing that I find interesting. It's kind of like sort of what you saw in the Phoenix project, you know, you need to be able to manage all those things and be able to deliver all the time mm-hmm. and monitor it and log it. The problem is that, that's not just answered by creating a bunch of scripts. You know what I mean? You know, even though like I've used Terraform and Puppet, I think there's a larger scale uh, solution. Uh, Microsoft just released a new framework called Dapper and Dapper is basically dealing with the microservices runtime. So it's a runtime that can sit on top of whether the microservices and go talk to Kubernetes because you need to be able to handle that runtime stuff as well as the development issues that go on. Those things are not two separate things. Mm-hmm. And I still think that's the one of the large DevOps challenges is how do you get everybody on board, you know? And, and I, at Via West, it was pretty sophisticated because all our DevOps people were software engineers. So we just wrote software for most of our problems. We either built it ourselves or used various tools. Uh, but then I went to a company called Faction where we had a less um, mature DevOps practice and we were building multi-cloud storage. So we had a lot of... Um, uh, microservices that allowed us to do Isilon, Dell storage, you know, so we built a fairly sophisticated micro- microservices platform. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the DevOps practice, which resulted in some interesting issues because the organization was not mature. It was re- everything was manual. So it's really hard to roll those out because you roll them out and then you can't roll them out as well as you'd like to because nobody's catching up. Mm-hmm. Like they're like, oh well, how do we do that? I'm like, oh yeah, that's an issue. There's no test going on. You couldn't do a chaos monkey, so that was in that case, it was pretty challenging, you know. And and also the whole, I'm thinking a lot lately about security and you know the fact that you have all these cloud native accounts, but you have, you know, you have these very, you know, you have credentials that give you access to RDS and Amazon, and then you know mm-hmm. those aren't really secured real well. And there's vaults and there's multiple ways to do it. And the whole security thing is. I don't think well-cooked in a lot of ways. I would claim it's not. Well, I, application security is now become uh, becoming maybe both, um, you know, one of the top topics. And it seems like we're just sort of, we do things differently and then we have to come back into and go and back and address like, okay, well, how are we doing this now? Because, you know, it's not about p- protecting servers and network devices. Um, we're exposing so much of the attack services of an application through all these microservices, APIs, et cetera. You got to kind of rethink it. And then you're automating the development environment to do, you know, 15, 20, 100 code deploys a day, potentially, 
Well, that takes automation. That means all those credentials, that security keys, certificates, whatever, are built into a process. Is all that secure? I think that's what you're talking about. Is you have to you have to do it, but you have to also go back and relook at it to say, are we doing this securely? Right. You have to look at things. Do I do I have is data at rest encrypted? Uh, do I check? any kind of hash on it? Uh, is the data in flight is encrypted? What are the levels of security? Do I let my JOT token float uh, to one service to another service? Because that could be an attack too, because I've went to service one and now I go to service two and I'm using the same JOT token, but maybe the claims on that second service, it shouldn't be allowed to do those things because the claims that it used from the first service lock it down better, but in service number two, it allows you suddenly, hey, I could go look at a different accounts that Mitch has. And well, that's interesting. So then you start thinking about, you know, how there's a couple good security books about that whole idea of, you know, jots are interesting, but the problems, if they float, if we haven't figured out the right way to share those, that's another thing that causes lots of problems. Mm-hmm. And for, for me and for our listeners, can you define what a jot token is? Uh, yeah, it's a JSON web token. It's, it's, okay. a, it's, it's just um, JSON, right? Yeah. 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 It's just a token that basically you can use with a, an API. You know, it, it's a little, it's, it's really for APIs. OAuth, you can do both. OAuth is more effective with users. Mm-hmm. But those are, you're seeing the industry starting to in, adopt JOTs between services. So now people are saying, but the problem is the concept behind it is the claim. I want to make a claim right. that your name is Mitch and you uh, live at this address and you have this phone number. And, and in this case, you, oh, by the way, you can look at your social security number. But in this case over here, you shouldn't be able to look at uh, this other person's social security number. So you start making all these claims and then you have to start getting really smart about how do we define all these claims for these very distributed systems, which mm-hmm. historically distributed systems where everybody, oh, is, if you had the... Uh, Root password, you're golden. We'll just use that and everything will connect to it. Yeah, interesting. It's really interesting. I've not been that close to it, but following what's happening with it, I think it's based on like RFC 7519. So it's based on a spec. It's about how claims essentially get bedded into what we traditionally think of as a data interface specification between services or applications. Anyway, we're not a JSON Jot <laughs> podcast, but interesting sideline. Let me get back to um, talking about microservices and cloud native. So as you've worked with existing applications and even you know, at a faction with something that maybe didn't start out in a DevOps world, what do you see as some of the kind of approaches that make sense and maybe things that you or others have tried that turned out not to be the best path or dead ends that you corrected from and now here's how you do things. The first problem I see is you make nano services. So instead of, you know, you make a microservice that tracks time and it's so small that it's not very effective. Uh, There's a software architecture discipline called domain-driven design, which is about when you build an application or service, there's a domain that if that it covers, whether it's a customer or a product, and it needs to be the right size. And if it's the right size, it's called it's the right what's called bounded context, because the whole idea is you want that service just to answer that bounded context, which is based off the idea of a single responsibility principle. If it only if it does more than one thing, you have a problem. So kind of getting people to understand that is complicated at a business level because, you know, 
business people historically want to throw everything in whatever they're building. Like, oh, can't mm -hmm. we just, why do we need to have such a small bounded context? Can't we like throw all the addresses and products in here? I'm like, no, because we need to keep those separated because we're trying to, each microservice has to have a very distinct separation of concerns because if you don't have that separation of concerns, you end up with a monolith, which is what we're trying to avoid. Mm, you end up back into the spill over again of domains into this Microsoft has too many services, too many things in it. Now one thing's affecting another versus let it be a single purpose you know, and a service. That's why we actually saw that this large, large, large financial institution has adopted domain-driven design and they're actually building domain models for all their applications and everything. So there will be domain models behind them. So it's just not the microservice. They actually can say, oh, by the way, this is what like this financial instrument looks like. And it actually maps to a true domain model that then will map to a true microservice. Mm -hmm. Okay, Which so domain-driven design, um, nano services or, or kind of focused uh, fun uh, functional uh, microservices that don't kind of spill over. There's another thing too you need is a, but historically, uh, Chris Richardson has a book called Microservice Patterns. Mm -hmm. And there's the idea of what's called a microservice chassis. So once you start building microservices, you either need to make a framework or use a pre-existing framework, whether it's Spring Boot, there's some stuff in .NET Core, so that when you write the microservices, all the logging's done the same, all the separation and concerns are handled so you deal with all those, you know, non-functional requirements so you don't have, you don't spend any time developing it. Mm -hmm. But then once you do that, then you have to start saying, well, how does this play in the runtime world of Kubernetes, which gets into the, some things that earlier, we need to sort of connect the framework with the runtime stuff. So that's kind of a problem you see in Pivotal, Microsoft, they're all looking, how do we get these really interesting software engineering frameworks that then map into runtime things that are, are equivalent. So we end up with, you know, oh, they're the same thing. They're isomorphic. They're not different. They just look different because we view them as different domains. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, we have a couple minutes left. I wanted to just take a little bit of a left turn, not quite a squirrel moment, but a little bit of a left turn. You know, I've been doing uh, some podcasts here recently with uh, folks, usually developers, uh, DevOps engineers, ops folks, who are talking at the Spinnaker Summit conference, speaking of Kubernetes and Spinnaker open source. So I've had a great opportunity to have other developers, uh, real hands-on technical folks, and one, on the podcast. And one of the things that I always encourage folks is, even in the open source community, you contribute not just by writing code, it's by sharing your knowledge, you know, applying these, these tools and software and sharing the knowledge and networking and building community with others. That's vital to having you know, a, a vibrant software is having a vibrant community about it. And I know you're very active in your own developer circles of, and communities and creating those. So a little bit about what you're involved in now and why you do it. Uh, I like doing it to share. I mean, I would say about four years ago, um, there, was a, there was a gentleman running a group. Um, there's a group worldwide called ISA, the International Association of Software Architects. And he was trying to get the group growing locally in the Rocky Mountain region, you know, Denver, Wyoming, that kind of area. And uh, it, he hadn't got very far. So I got kind of involved and we've actually grown it over to four years that we have 2000 members and we get about 60 to 100 members coming every meeting and we and it's truly talking about architecture. It could be the Kubernetes architecture, it could be domain-driven design, uh, last month, I talked about how to build microservices that are stateful. 
surprisingly, there's a there's a company called Cloud State, uh, Microsoft, and Akka that have figured out how to build stateful microservices. We I mean, won't deviate did, to that. They didn't bring pitchforks, and you know, they didn't bring pitchforks. It works pretty well. <laughs> but, but we get we get we get different people. We got the guy who's the original guy at FedEx who created all their stuff that looked like Kubernetes in the '60s come talk. Uh, we've had people from Slack. We get a lot of people to 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 come talk. I talk at I've talked at the Carnegie Mellon Architecture Conference. Can't remember what it's called. Um, I talk at a lot of Microsoft groups. Uh, I run a meetup for Microsoft. They had their, they had a few .NET groups that were dying. So I, I pitched to them, why don't we turn that into a .NET Core and open source group? And mm-hmm. so I've been running that, and I've grown it. That's almost to 1,000 members now. It was actually only 200. So in the three or four months, I've actually grown it. I like creating communities of technical people. Because when you do that, you actually can solve interesting problems. You also get to hear other people's experiences. I can give you an example. One of the guys who got involved with ISA, I was talking in Colorado Springs at an event. I can't remember where. And I was outside the event. And this guy, Tyler, came up to me and started talking to me. And I discovered he was really technical. And he said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm talking about microservices, not net core. He said, why don't I come in? And we, we actually, he became the person who asked me most questions during the event, and then he became one of the four members that helped us run the Denver Software mm-hmm. Architects Group. Mm, and we became really good friends, and it was like, I, you know, just talking to somebody outside an event I was going to speak at. Very interesting. Well, you know, I think it's also, um, all the things you said, I, I totally agree with. It's also a way for someone who wants to know about a topic, maybe, and I like how you're kind of keeping the groups fresh on what's happening and new and in. Microsoft and other worlds of software. It's a place for folks to go and learn about it and hear what other people do. If you're, even if you're very engaged in a new technology already, it's what are other people doing and what have they learned from it? What can you share? What can they share with you? Vice versa. So it's, it's a healthy thing to do. Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I find it more enjoyable. Um, it's up there with this robotics stuff first I do in terms of raw enjoyment because it's so you're plugged into so many people where when you know when I'm doing consulting or helping build a startup or all those bubs it's enjoyable but it has this has more of a kind of like you know not selfless but it has more of a giving back vibe that I like a lot mm-hmm. very good well hey we've uh, run out of time you and I could talk for 12 hours and you know <laughs> up to 3 a.m. in the morning with so much fun things that uh, that you've done. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Well, Tom. thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. I uh, really enjoyed it. Well, good. Me too. You, you've listened to another DevOps chat. I'm very pleased to have my guest, Donald Lutz, on with us today. Donald is Principal Software Architect. He focuses on microservices, cloud, uh, cloud-native, uh, generally Microsoft technologies, but a lot of other things, and he's with Technotronic Systems. He's also been with Faction, BioWest, Boltec Systems, a number of different companies, so he has a lot of software background. And again, our topic today was microservices and cloud native. Thank you also to you, our listeners, for joining us. This is Mitch Ashley, and you've listened to another DevOps chat. Thanks, and be careful out there. <laughs>